Hi everybody, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as Franklin Covey's Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership. What that means in a nutshell is I have the privilege to be the author or co-author of several of Franklin Covey's new books, including Management Mess to Leadership Success, which launched in June of 2019, became a, a very quick number one new release on Amazon, and I'm the co-author of a new book we're publishing just out in October called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team, co-author with my colleagues Todd Davis and Victoria Rusolson. I also, in that role, have the privilege of hosting our weekly radio program on iHeartRadio and the host of this program for Franklin Covey, where each week we interview a best-selling author, major thought leader, multiple star general, Pulitzer Prize-winning authors, people who have something in common, which is they've paid the price to research a topic that is relevant to all of our subscribers across the world. Today is no different. We have the New York Times best-selling author of multiple books, including The Sports Gene and Range, Wild Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He is a former senior writer at Sports Illustrated, investigative reporter, the new really kind of you know, guy in vogue, David Epstein. Welcome to On Leadership. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to put the guy in vogue on a, on a business card. Well, I think it's true because you're on every bestseller list. Your book has really swept the country by storm. I think perhaps most importantly, though, your, your favorite newest title might be Dad, because I hear you're a first-time dad recently. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so a totally new part of my identity, new adventure, and, and the research that went into this newest book um, really changed a lot of what I thought my approach to parenting would be. So it's been kind of an interesting confluence of the personal and the professional lately. Yeah, welcome to parenting. I ha my wife and I had three boys in five years, which was um, um, unrecommended, not recommended. <laughs> and now they are, I think, um, five, seven, and nine. And your book has uh, no doubt challenged a lot of my thinking around what I am deliberately leading, luring my boys into deuce. We're going to talk about how valuable your book is as a parenting book. I'm guessing you didn't set out for your book to be a particular genre of book, a leadership book or a parenting book. I'd love it if you would let our audience become acquainted with you. Kind of what's your journey been? You've obviously built on the wild success of your first book, The Sports Gene. Talk a bit about your path to leading this book and why you wrote this new book called Range. Yeah, I mean, my, my path to, you know, to even being a science writer. So in my uh, past life, I was training to be a scientist. I was actually living in a tent in the Arctic, uh, training to be a geology researcher when I decided for sure that I was going to become a writer. Uh, so I had, had quite the winding path. And, you know, when I got in, when I first got into journalism coming out of science, I really couldn't get um, a job. So the first thing I could do was I applied for a job at New York Daily News, you know, a tabloid newspaper in New York. Uh, got rejected, and then they came back and said, well, someone's leaving who starts working at midnight, so if you'll replace that person, you can do it. So I went from training to be a scientist to pretty soon to working from midnight to the morning for a New York newspaper, which I'm sure you can imagine nothing uh, happy that's going. The newspaper happens between midnight and 10 a.m. Um, and sort of worked my way through journalism. Eventually, I got to Sports Illustrated, where I got as a temp fact checker. Right? I got there because I wanted to write about um, sudden cardiac death in athletes, because I, I had been a nationally competitive runner and had a training partner who, who died. And pretty soon realized that my sort of ordinary science skills taken over into the context of a sports magazine uh, made me kind of extraordinary. And so I sort of zoomed from temp fact checker to the youngest senior writer there very much because I had these 
these odd, these skills that were you know normal in one area but totally oddball in another. And I became the science writer at Sports Illustrated. Uh, that led to um, me writing this book about genetics and sports, and that brought me into you know after that book came out, I critiqued some of the science underlying the so-called 10,000 hours rule. And I was invited to debate Malcolm Gladwell at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference about the best way for athletes to develop. And he had written about the importance of early specialization. And I'm the science writer at Sports Illustrated. So I said, let me go see what the research says. And it actually showed that athletes who go on to become elite uh, don't specialize early, typically, in most sports. They have what scientists call a sampling period, where they play a wide variety of activities, gain broad general skills, learn about their interests, learn about their abilities. Uh, and systematically delay specializing until later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. And he and I, you know, when we came off the stage, he sort of said, you know, you got me on that. You should think about writing about that. And we became running buddies and would talk about it more. And eventually I came to see that sort of trend in sports as an analogy through which I could think about exploring other domains in the work world. And that's, that's what this book is. Well, it's a labor of love. We're going to talk all about that in the course of the interview. I want to do something a little bit out of sequence. I really enjoyed, oddly enough, the acknowledgments part of your book. I always read them as an author. I think you glean a lot about the author. And so I tend to read the acknowledgments first before I read a book, as I did yours. And I'm going to quote a couple of things out of the acknowledgments part, strange I know, and have you talk about them. And then we'll go into the book. You write in it where you say, um, thank you to everyone who took part of my torturous fact-checking process. And you go on to talk about some people who helped you with that. And then you say, this book was the greatest organizational challenge I faced, figuring out how to gather information, what to include, and then where to put it overwhelmed me many times. A quote kept coming to mind. It's a little like wrestling a gorilla. You don't quit when you're tired. You quit when the gorilla's tired. And then you go on to say that um, you had a famous quote you would use to respond to people when my book is done. I'm guessing that comes from an unprecedented amount of effort, perhaps overwhelming effort it took to publish a book that is rigorously researched, who no doubt is going to be challenged by lots of social scientists and such. Talk mm -hmm. first, if you will, about the labor of love that is your book. Did it take longer than you thought? What were some processes that you employed to kind of stick with it? Because there's no question this is an unusually well-researched, documented, disciplined book. Give us some insight into that process. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never had anyone ask me about acknowledgments before in all the, the many, many interviews I've done, so I appreciate that. And those words, you know, my, my wife and I were into Game of Thrones at the time, and all the famous houses have house words like strength and honor or winter is coming or whatever. And we joked that, that ours were when my book is done because that's the answer I gave to everybody for everything for a couple of years. And it, and, it, and it is a tricky, so I mean, for, for the first year of both of my books, okay, I actually don't write basically anything. I write down um, thoughts and things, but I don't do anything that ends up in the book. My goal in the first year is to try to read 10 scientific journal articles a day, every day for the first year with no real writing, some interviewing, you know, and then you start to get a, sort of a lay of the land because the project, I mean, this question of how broad or specialized to be, right? This is a question that I think is important to everyone, but usually only discussed with intuition. And so my goal is not to have a perfect answer for some complex question like this, but can I bring research to it that makes those discussions more interesting and more productive? But the first thing I have to do is even define the playing field. Like, think about that. You say, well, is it good to be broad or narrow and, and when and how? And 
So even defining like what topics I should include is a huge challenge. And I end up generating this thing I call a master thought list where as I'm going through my research and I start to see papers, you know, or I do some interviews, I start grouping them into sort of like concepts. And when enough of those end up together, I give them what I call a tag on this list where I name the concept and I put a bunch of words next to it that I would search if I want to find this. And over time, these ideas start coalescing and then I just move them into an order as if I were storyboarding a film basically. And then that's, that's the order of the book, but it's, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, this master thought list ends up being an outline for the book, but it ended up being 60,000 words long. And the book is like 90,000 words long. So it, it's really a challenge to organize that information. Sometimes I just had to, um, I just had to get away from it because I get obsessed, right? Like I'll wake up in the middle of the night, like this is the paper I need to see. Maybe this will have the answer. Uh, and so I, I found that I actually had to veer off the project to, to maintain my intensity. So at one point I went and took an online beginners, online fiction writing course, just because I was so frustrated with the writing. I felt like I had to do something else to remind myself that I actually like writing. And that course was sort of a revelation. We had to, one of the exercises we had to write, a story using no dialogue. And I realized I was not using, because I had been doing magazine writing for a couple of years, I was not using quotes how I should. I was using them to cover up things I didn't understand well enough. And I went back through my whole manuscript and, and took out a lot of quotes and learned things better and realized I could write them more clearly you know, in my own voice. And so I found that I would have to do stuff that was like veering off my normal inertia and normal work mm -hmm. to kind of refresh myself um, and get away from the frustration and, and sort of step away to see my project from the outside. And I, I found I had to do that repeatedly because otherwise I tend to go like very intense and, and work time is all day, every day. And that might seem like a cool thing, but I don't actually think it's best for performance. So I've programmed in ways to sometimes get away from it and make sure that I'm I'm stepping away and, and looking at my own project with outside eyes. So David, it's no exaggeration to say you've written a seminal book. This book will be in everybody's nightstand for years to come and on bookshelves for decades. I guess I'm hearing from you, it took you how long to write this book? Several years? That's a good question. I mean, the, the time from signing the contract to turning in a manuscript was like a little less than two years, but it's harder to find the period because in, in some ways, I mean, the introduction very much comes out of that debate that I had with right. Malcolm. Right. Uh, and that was in 2014. And then we started talking about those things while running. And I started sort of thinking about them. And some other experiences I had would sort of accumulate in my head. So it's really a lot of the, uh, the sort of list of questions that you generate in your head that, yeah. that becomes a book is happening, you know, started happening as soon as I started getting a response to my first book. So the formal period was like, maybe two and a half years to a final draft, because I, I turned it in like 20,000 words too long and, and had to cut a bunch of stuff back. So that was the formal period, but it's really these ideas are sort of, you know, gestating for a lot longer. So it's not such a defined, defined period, really. David, I asked that question because so many of our listeners and, and, and viewers obviously are interested in writing a book, right? And they read lots of books. So it's yeah. always, I think, very helpful to find how very successful authors like you kind of um, uncover their own process and the amount of work it takes to deliver this. Let's get in. And I apologize in advance because I'm sure you've told this story now countless times, but would you recap for us kind of the seminal idea in the beginning of the book, which is the kind of the now classic debate, you know, Roger versus Tiger. Talk about why mm -hmm. that's so important and kind of how it as a parenting guide 
relates to anybody who's raising kids and our temptation to drive push versus pull. Yeah, so this is this is where I start the book, right, with the the Tiger Woods story, which I think even if you don't know the details, you most people have probably absorbed the gist. It's sort of the quintessential ten thousand hours story. Father gave him a putter when he was seven months old. Not trying to turn him into a golfer yet, just just as a toy. Ten months, he's imitating a swing. You know, three or four, he's saying, "I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas." And you fast forward to age twenty one, and he's the greatest golfer in the world. And that's probably become the most powerful modern development story. I yeah. would say, you know, at the heart of of quite a few bestsellers. Um, and, and understandably, I mean, very dramatic. And the, the story I tell next is about Roger Federer. And Roger played, you know, he played some basketball, some badminton, soccer, swimming. Uh, his mother was a tennis coach, but refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. He went on to do handball, uh, volleyball, rugby, skateboarding, um, you know, slew of other sports. And when his coaches wanted to move him up a level, he declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends. And unlike sort of Tiger's father, Roger's parents were, as one sport, one of my Sports Illustrated colleagues described it, pulley. So they didn't want him putting all his eggs in, in the sports basket. In fact, when he got good enough to uh, warrant an interview with a local newspaper and the reporter asked him what he would buy with his first hypothetical paycheck if he ever became a pro, he said a Mercedes. And his mother, who you know didn't want him focusing that way, was appalled and asked the reporter if she could hear the interview recording, and he obliged. And it turned out Roger had said Mercedes in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. Um, and so she was fine with that. So these were these two sort of diametrically opposite paths, both of which led to the top, but only one of which do we ever hear about. And my question was, which one is the norm? And it turns out that, uh, you know, in most areas of sports and in most areas of work, the Roger path is the norm, not the tiger. So one of the things that compelled me to write the book was the fact that we were extrapolating from the wrong story. So I'm a big fan of everything that Malcolm Gladwell's written. I was a fan of Malcolm 20 years ago in his New Yorker articles, long before his books, and I've read Jeff Colvin's book, Talent is Overrated. And I think together they've popularized this idea of 10,000 hours, I think from another scientist completely. Would you give some context to our listeners and viewers about the 10,000 hour rule and what's, what's useful to take from that and from your research, what should we kind of debunk and leave behind? Because I mean, I, I'm one of those who evangelizes that. I repeat it, it sounds smart in speeches, but I'd love to know kind of what your thinking is around that phrase that's become quite ubiquitous in corporate America now. Yeah, and that's that's something that was in both of my books. And in, in the first one, so the original 10,000 hour study was done on 30 violinists who were in a world famous music academy and the 10 best who the teachers felt could go on to become international soloists had practiced, spent 10,000 hours in what's called deliberate practice. So this is like cognitively engaged, focused on correcting errors, repetitive, um, often alone. They had spent on average 10,000 hours by age 20. and. Basically, the conclusions that came out of this work was that there's no such thing as talent, right? Whatever you think is talent just is actually this huge amount of practice masquerading as talent. And um, this other thing that came out of it called the monotonic benefits assumption, which is this idea that every individual gets the same amount of improvement from the same unit of practice when they're at the same level. And so it sort of became uh, this idea that you can just pick something and put in 10,000 hours and, and become an expert and nothing else really matters. And there were a number of flaws with it. And by the way, I should say, I think just out today, there's a replication of the original study showing that it did not replicate, in fact, with music students and, and better methods. So 
in the scientific literature, this is a, a huge blow to that original study. Um, but there were problems with it from the get-go, like it didn't include any measures of variance, which means the 10,000 hours was an average. Some people went over 10,000 hours, some people were well under, and by taking an average, you actually obscure the reality of human skill acquisition. So, so chess, another area where the 10,000 hours has been talked about a lot, it takes 11,053 hours on average to reach international master status, which is one down from grandmaster. But some people learn each, each sort of unit of chess skill faster than others, and they've made it in 3,000 hours. Other people in a study were tracked up to 25,000 hours and still hadn't made it. So, you know, I sort of think of the, the real breadth of human skill acquisition literature would be better off with like a 10,000 hours plus or minus 10,000 hours rule, because that's, that's what it actually looks like. And a lot of things other than just practice matter, including figuring out what you're good at, the realms where you learn much more quickly, or identifying what economists call match quality, which is the degree of fit between your interests and abilities and the work that you do, so that um, you, know, you don't have to put in uh, more work than, than the next person uh, necessarily. And also a huge swath of science from sports to, to other types of skills have shown that it's essentially never true that two people get the same benefit from the exact same practice. Yeah. There's tremendous individual variability. So we really need to pay attention to creating the best environment for the individual learner and kind of personalizing that. And one of the things I sort of um, pushed back against in the 10,000 hour rule was this idea that you can have a cookie cutter rule and do the same practice for everyone, they'll get the same results. Like anyone who's ever been in a training group, and I was a college athlete, I'm in a group of runners, I was a track athlete, we're all doing the same thing and getting more different, not more the same. And so I think it's, it's the good, the great thing about it is it emphasizes the fact that practice is important, effortful practice is important, cognitively engaged practice is important, and it often takes more than people think, and people can often get better than they think at many things. That is true. And I would say Malcolm and I are now on the same page because we were invited back to that conference where we originally debated, and this is on YouTube, and he says, I now believe I conflated two ideas. The idea that a lot of practice is important to become great at something, which is true, with the idea that in order to become great at X thing, you should do X and only X from as early as possible, which I now believe is false. And so he and I are exactly, you know, pretty much on the same ground now, I would say. Not just on that, but also on the sales of your book. So stand by. I, I'm going to first ask well, you. I don't know about that, uh, but well, you'll get there. Own, you're you're going to get order. there, sir. If you can see, I've read a few books, so I know a bit about the trajectory of books. I'm going to ask you first a parenting question, then I'm going to pivot to a kind of a career leadership question. In the opening of your book, you show an illustration in the Roger versus Tiger chapter that's called yeah. "Late Specialization as the Key to Success," and it's kind of yeah. kind of rocks your world as a parent especially a parent who's putting their children you know, through a specific sport. Let me tell you about my life, right? So I'm 51. I mentioned I have three boys, five, seven, and nine. I played tennis kind of as the only serious sport up through high school and then you know, play it casually after that. Mm -hmm. I have deliberately started all three boys playing tennis at age three, not because mm -hmm. I expect for them to get college scholarships or to be the next Roger Federer, but because I think it's a good sport. It builds some self-confidence, keeps them focused, keeps their time. And I'm not sure it's the right decision because in your book, you reference this idea of kind of kind of peeking out in terms of, you know, near elite and elite athletes. Will you kind of just generally talk about some parenting advice? I know you're a new parent. Check that for a moment. What advice would you give to parents at large that are introducing their children to singular or multiple sports, depending upon what their end in mind is, 
what does your research tell you is probably the best approach at focusing or not focusing on a particular sport early on? Yeah, and so first of all, there's nothing at all. Early exposure is great, right? Introducing early, that's great. The question is, is it this specialization in sort of technical practice, right? Is one of the um, uh, one of the scientists and coaches who works with like tons of Olympians and pro athletes I talked to, as he said, the problem nowadays is people come to him, parents, and say, I want my kid doing what, you know, X pro athlete is doing now, not what X pro athlete was doing when they were 12, which is totally different because it turns out the way to develop the best 10-year-old is not the same as the way to develop the best 20-year-old. And so I don't, you know, you shouldn't necessarily worry about introducing something early, but is it going to real sort of specialization in technical practice? So like when I lived in Brooklyn until recently, there was a U7 travel soccer team that met at a park near me. I don't think there's anyone in the world who thinks that six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of 9 million people that they need to travel. But it's part of this sort of specialization complex that everyone thinks getting a head start has to be good. But in fact, what the science shows, and one of the themes of range is, is that sometimes what you can do to cause the most rapid short-term apparent progress can actually undermine long-term development. And that's what a lot of the sports research looks like, where people who are learning the kind of technical skills early on and, and engaging in lots of deliberate practice and are very specialized, they peak earlier because they're less adaptable later. And the people who go to higher levels have this very broad, often learning in lightly structured or unstructured environments, and only later do they specialize. And this epitomizes this finding that psychologists summarize as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Transfer is your ability to apply your skills or knowledge to a, to a new problem that you haven't seen before, whether that's in the work world or the sports world. As the level gets higher, that's what you have to do. You have to be able to adjust to things that you haven't exactly experienced before. And what predicts your ability to do that is how broad your early training was, because it allows you to build general cognitive skills and general motor skills that become adaptable as the challenge changes. And so that's really what you want. You want this breadth early on that scaffolds these later, more technical skills. So if you want, if you're training someone to win the 10 year old world championships, then by all means you should specialize them because they will learn these sort of technical skills ahead of their peers. But those are called closed skills, but everyone ends up learning those. So the advantage disappears or, or you see what, what's called the fade out effect in this kind of research. So if you're, if you're gearing up to make the best adult athlete, you want this breadth early on um, and, and delaying special with exposure, delaying specialization. And I think you can do that as in terms of advice for parents, I think you can do that within a sport in some way. So tennis, for example, I'm a huge fan of Judy Murray, uh, whose sons are Andy and Jamie Murray, you know, Andy, one of the great tennis players. And she has a camp where she takes kids and she, they're playing tennis. And so the parents are okay with it, but really she's having them, you know, play through tree branches one day and deflating the ball another day, doing all these challenges that vary up what they're actually doing. So it's like they have a racket and a ball, so it kind of satisfies the parents. But really, she's giving them this very broad training, which is exactly what you should do. Now, I should say, I think there are exceptions. Like, I think I think early specialization may work in golf, even though Brooks Kepka, the current best player in the world, was not near. I mean, he started playing golf because he got in a car accident, and his parents told him to stop, not do contact sports for a while. But... I could see why specialization may work in golf, but it turns out that golf is kind of a horrible model of almost everything else that humans want to learn, which is why it's a problem that we've, we've extrapolated from golf to all these other endeavors. 
David, your book is much broader, of course, than just sports analogies and, and parenting. Obviously, it's a great career book. In fact, your tagline is, Why Generalist Triumph in a Specialized World. Let me, let me pitch a career example to you. I have two colleagues of mine who used to work for me. They're still very much here at the company. Let's call them Jennifer and Jimmy, because those are their names. Jennifer, I have encouraged, when I was the chief marketing officer, to become very highly specialized in, in the digital side of marketing, and she did. And she created, from being a generalist, to becoming a specialist, I, I think um, industry expertise at marketing automation, digital marketing, web analytics, and now she runs that part of the business for the new vice president. Jimmy, on the other hand, just as talented, I really encouraged to become a generalist because I thought his skills would be much more broadly developed than Jen's. Not that one was smarter, I just thought Jen's maybe aptitude was more on the digital side. It would help her to have a, a strong career um, track in that. And I've encouraged Jimmy to become more of a generalist, which I think would put him on a path, he's younger than Jen, for a broader career, inside or outside the company, perhaps as a, as, as a CMO or such. Both are equally as talented and valuable. What advice would you give them to correct what I said or to anybody who's developing a career to kind of follow your tagline, why generalists triumph in a specialized world? Do you think I served Jennifer wrong? No, I, I don't. Uh, I think there are a couple things you mentioned I want to touch on. So first of all, what I think you did is akin to something I mentioned briefly in range um, that the Army uses called talent-based branching. Okay, so the Army obviously for a long time had a strict sort of upper out career structure. And with the and that worked fine for a long time. But with the explosion of the knowledge economy, they found that they actually started hemorrhaging their best young officers because you know, in a knowledge economy, you have a ton of lateral mobility that we didn't have in a more industrial economy where people should be more specialized because they're doing a similar, you know, work next year will look like work last year. That's not the case anymore. Now workers that can engage in knowledge creation and creative problem solving have enormous lateral mobility. And so these officers would see that and they would leave the military to because they had no agency over following their interests and abilities. They couldn't, you know, pursue their own match quality. So they'd go out of the army to do it. At first, the Army thought this was like a millennial grit problem or something, because it only started with the knowledge economy. And they threw money at it, and the people who were going to stay stayed anyway, and the people who were going to leave left anyway, and that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money down the drain. Then they realized that they had this sort of talent market problem, and they created programs like talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career path, go up or out, they say, we're going to pair you with a coach. Try this one career path, reflect on how it fits you with your coach on your match quality, then try another and another and you know, two others. And we'll continually triangulate the best specialty for you. And by doing that, one, they improved retention a ton because it turns out that when you get fit, it looks like grit. That's another, you know, I'm quoting a researcher there. Like when you get someone in work that fits them, they'll show more interest, persistence, and work ethic, uh, even if they didn't show those characteristics before. And also they arrive at that specialty with a broader knowledge of what their colleagues and peers do because they sort of sampled, you know, they had the sampling period like future elite athletes do. And so I think what you were doing is a form of playing the coach in the talent-based branching process. Where you're saying, here are these people, you know, I have some understanding of their talents, I have some understanding of the world they're going into, and I'm gonna sort of help them reflect on that and coach them to where I think they can, you know, I think you said it was it was Jennifer who you thought she was a little stronger in the tech. Yeah. Um, you know, to coach them to a place where you're helping them find their match quality. And I think that talent-based branching approach, um, you know, that, that's the approach I, I want to take to parenting, right? See, viewing myself as the coach 
who facilitates opportunities, makes sure that the learner gets the maximum amount of signal about themselves and about their options from it, and then go forward and try to triangulate that match quality. So, so I think that's fantastic. And and from the standpoint of um, uh, what was the other? It was Jimmy. Jennifer and, and Jimmy. What was the other guy's name? Jimmy. Jimmy. So telling him to be a generalist, and you mentioned maybe he'll be, you know, maybe be a CMO or something. I mean, LinkedIn recently did research looking at the best predictors of who would become a future executive. And they did it on a half million members, you know, because they have these great databases. And one of the strongest predictors was the number of different job functions that an individual had worked across. Yeah. Right? And I think that's kind of counterintuitive because usually we'd tell someone to pick and stick. It sounds like you didn't do that specifically because you saw this person as maybe kind of executive potential um, later on. I think it was each different job function on average saved someone about three years of experience in getting toward the C-suite. But it's very rare that we'll tell somebody to go switch job functions, right? So I think you actually did something unusual, but that's in line with the research um, that suggests this provides this sort of broader holistic view of an industry that, that executives need. And I should say, um, we need specialists also. I, I, my view of this is similar to what the eminent physicist and mathematician Freeman Dyson said, that we need both birds and frogs. The frogs are down in the mud seeing the granular details. The birds are up above not seeing all those details, but integrating the knowledge of frogs. And he said, we need both for a healthy ecosystem. Yeah. The problem is we're telling everyone to be frogs. Right. And that can put us in a realm where no one's looking at the holistic picture and we can become very inflexible. So I definitely think we need both. It's just that I think the the pressures were very much weighted in one direction. It sounds like you were, you know, a, effectively a coach or mentor who was willing to diversify that based on, on individual abilities and interests, which is the essence of finding match quality. So I, I think that's great that you did. You know, I did it uh, as a bit of introspection with Jimmy because my brother and I are just the two of us and in, in, in our, in our family, at least my parents' family, right? My brother is a master's in chemical engineering. Um, from MIT, you know, master black belt, Six Sigma, highly specialized in that. And you know, my education was in communication, right? I've been in sales, I've been in project management, I've worked internationally, you know, became a chief marketing officer, now I'm writing books and speaking and hosting podcasts. And I think we both took good paths. Mine was more risky, I feel like, because my brother has a very tangible credential, right? I mean, he's a master chemical engineer, and I'm not sure what I am, but I think it paid off well for both of us. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's very insightful, you know, and I think there are, it's funny to say you're not sure what you are, I, I'm in that same realm too, and I think that's part of the anxiety that people have about building breadth in right. their career. So right. in the last chapter, I talk about Andre Geim, who's the only scientist to ever win the Ig Nobel Prize for the silliest uh, research and the Nobel Prize for, obviously, less silly right. research. Right. Um, and he won both of those from unfunded experiments that he did on his own time because he has this very playful nature. And one of the things he's talked about before, you know, even before he won the Nobel, was how he likes to change his research area every five years. Um, and he says, this is not psychologically uh, safe feeling, but he feels like it adds to his power to see things differently and to integrate ideas. And it's also the life he wants to live. So he had this phrase I loved where he says, I like to say, I don't do research, only search. Right. And so I think some of that anxiety, you know, even for a Nobel laureate comes from this feeling of, of, of changing what you're doing, being not what you're supposed to do. And one of the uh, a woman whose work I talk about a lot in the book, Herminia Ibarra, who studies how people find career fits, um, 
you know, she talks about work as such a big part of identity that of course it's always unsettling to not just pick something and go straight at it because it's part of identity formation. And if you're going this way and going that way, um, it can be harder to form an identity for a while. And so I think that that sort of anxiety is, is typical, but when we get too specialized, you know, disciplines are a necessary evil, right? Of making the world comprehensible. And so it's good to have disciplinary specialists, but at some point someone has to put the world back together again. And I think specialists with range often recognize that. So like one of the people I profiled in the book was Alf Bingham, who was the VP of research and development, Eli Lilly, also a, a, an organic chemist. And he started out by telling me, look, I'm so specialized. If it doesn't have a carbon, you know, if this molecule doesn't have a carbon in it, I'm not even supposed to work with it. That's how, that's how specialized I am. And his realization of that led him to start this essentially sort of crowdsourcing operation um, to get outside eyes on problems that stumped researchers at Eli Lilly. And people were so skeptical of it at first. And then it worked out so well that he spun it off into an, its entirely own company called Innocentive, where you know, people from sort of fields you would never think of, like one guy who had just retired from a cell phone company, solved a problem in six months that had stumped NASA for 30 years about predicting solar storms. And so I think you can be a specialist and still realize the benefit of, uh, of outside eyes and of range and Sometimes you can do that by platoon, and I think communication technology has actually made that easier than ever. We just have to take those opportunities. David, I think range could become a great high school or like freshman orientation college course because it probably would allow a lot of people to not become lawyers, right? Because they end up and they realize <laughs> they don't want to do that or become accountants or perhaps they double down on it. I think a lot of us have no idea, and if you gave people, which you are, kind of more permission to value range, people would find their passions probably faster and quicker. I, I want to talk before our time is up about my favorite chapter in the book, which is chapter six. You title it, The Trouble with Too Much Grit. In fact, I've read a lot of books. I've read about 75 books already this year for the interview series. You're the only author who I've ever read who could spend seven pages describing someone by not mentioning their name until the end. Would you take a moment and kind of walk us through the insight that is a story around Vincent Van Gogh? Yeah, so, so Vincent, I, I wasn't sure if you were going to want me to tell the story without naming him, but now he's named. So um, he started life, you know, he was a, a very good student and he got into a, uh, a boarding school far from home and he did excellently, but didn't really like the stuff in class, wanted to write poetry and didn't like living with a strange family. So he dropped out, comes home, doesn't know what to do. Fortunately, his uncle has started a fabulously successful um, art dealership and gives him a job. And Vincent, as he will do several times over his life, says, this is my calling. You know, I'll never need, he writes a letter and says, I'll never need to look for work again. But pretty soon, he doesn't really like bargaining with customers. He sort of sees it as, as trying to swindle them. And he, he has a dispute with his uh, boss and he gets, he gets laid off and he's not sure what to do. He goes to try to work as a teacher. And essentially, basically that doesn't fit either. So he decides to follow in his father's footsteps as a pastor. And he, he, he has incredible work ethic which is remarked upon everywhere he goes. When he starts to study to be a pastor, he has to get into university. He makes a hat with lights on it so he can, and he says, I will wake up earlier than my peers and go to sleep later. And he copies whole texts by hand. But it's pretty soon it's clear that Latin and Greek don't come easy to him and he, he fails out of that program. And then uh, he goes to be a bookseller. And again, his work ethic, he saves the store by physically carrying out all the books one handful at a time when the store floods, but that's not a big enough work for him for life. And so he tries to be a preacher, but 
he sort of fails out of that program because his speeching his speech skills he can't do the sort of concise uh, talks that the program wants and he, he bounces from one thing to another every time working incredibly hard every time um, thinking that it is his calling finally becoming an itinerant catechist out in the coal country where workers are so downtrodden they refer to ground level above the coal mines as up there in hell and he has his final failure there where his ministry sort of falls apart and he's approaching 30 with no possessions no accomplishments and can't figure out what to do other than try to document the life around him. He buys a book called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing and starts drawing. And, you know, I don't want to take the story on too long, but basically within the art world, he starts, you know, pinballing from one experiment to another as he had done between professions until he integrates all these experiences into a style that has never been seen before, that's totally unique. And he disrupts his industry forever, right? He becomes the bridge from realism to modern art. And he does it basically because of this sort of relentless experimentation where he dives into something, gets signal about how it fits him, and then changes directions in response. And that is basically the optimal way that economists model the search for match quality, which is trying a bunch of things, you know, getting as much signal as you can, and then zigzagging when it makes sense. And so I use him as an example of of uh, getting into that topic. Sorry, I hope that wasn't too long and digressive. No, it was great. Like I, I want to talk a bit about your opinion on the value of grit and the relation between grit and range. Talk a bit about why you wrote a chapter about grit. Yeah, so grit is, people, everyone's familiar with the term, but I think the, the, the scientific term is the psychological construct. It's based on a 12-question survey. Uh, half of them award points for per, what's called persistence of effort and the other half for consistency of interests, right? right? So on persistence of effort, uh, Vincent would score really, really high. I had his biographer kind of take the test for him in the book, um, his Pulitzer Prize winning biographer. So not just not just a, a random biographer, but, um, and he would not score well on consistency of interests essentially. And so I decided to go back and look at the grit studies. And one of the, you know, the, the most famous study is the one done at West Point on cadets getting through beast barracks, the rigorous orientation. And it turns out that grit's a better predictor of who will get through than our more traditional measures like test scores and physical tests. But, you know, those gritty cadets, again, since the start of the knowledge economy, about half of them have been quitting the army essentially on the day that they are allowed because they're not able to pursue match quality on their own terms in an economy that has a lot of lateral mobility. And so did they suddenly lose their grit overnight? No, I don't think so. It's that when you get fit, it looks like grit, and they weren't being allowed to find fit. So we should think about grit as what psychologists call a state, not a trait. A trait is something that's inherent to a person across everything they do. A state is something, a characteristic of a person that is a function of being in a particular context. And that's how, that's how grit looks. And in fact, um, you know, so if we're, not, if we're not quitting and changing directions sometimes in response to match quality information, then we're almost certainly not finding our best fit. And the same week that my book came out, I subscribed to Angela Duckworth's newsletter. She's the, the researcher most famously associated with grit. And the same week my book came out, her, her newsletter was titled Summer is for Sampling, where she said, you know, of course kids shouldn't be gritty before they find out what they should be gritty at. And she goes on to describe her own decade of searching for match quality before she realized where she should be gritty. So if you had caught her in that decade when she was sort of changing things she was doing, um, she probably wouldn't have scored that well on the consistency of interests part. So I think we need to be careful 
about the message we take from constructs like that, because there's a lot of evidence that consistency of interests, you know, you might actually be making decisions in response to important information. And in all of the grid studies, people are already pre-selected for a very narrow goal, right? Life isn't a six-week orientation. Life isn't the finals of the National Spelling Bee, which is another famous grid study. The options are much broader and you're not pre-selected for your goal already. So I think we need to, to balance grit, which is a helpful construct, with the search for match quality. That leads me to a great point, because in this discussion, you talk about the value of understanding the value of quitting, right? You quote a dear friend of mine and a guest here from Seth Godin, um, illustrate the conditions under when you should quit. Talk a bit about your opinion and what the research shows around quitting as an option. Yeah, I think Seth said quitting can be so important that you should actually know conditions under which you would quit before you even even start something. Right. But there's you know a, a lot a lot of work that actually shows it's it's sort of beneficial to be changing your interests. So the the so-called Freakonomics economist Steve Levitt, he did a fascinating experiment where uh, he had people flip a digital coin to make major life decisions, and the most common thing people asked was should they quit their job, and it turned out that. Um, if people flipped, I think it was heads that flipped that said they should change their job, those people ended up better off. The ones who followed this, you know, just a chance advice to go ahead and change their job. And there's a lot of other evidence like this, that when people change jobs, they are set back um, because, you know, they've, they've lost some domain specific skills or experience, but that their growth rates are usually faster when they switch of their own accord because they're identifying a better fit. And so it's sort of in line with this finding that I think sort of exemplifies that where an economist found uh, a natural experiment in the higher ed systems of England and Scotland. In the period he studied, students in England had to specialize early like in their mid teen years to decide what program of study to apply to. In Scotland, the students could sample all the way through end of university if they wanted. And so they could very much like start down one career track and then you know leave that to try another and another. And so they they had, uh, I guess, ability. I, I you know I like to think of these things as talent-based branching because it sounds better than quitting. But essentially, they had freedom to be quitting. And his question was, who wins the trade-off? The early or late specializers? And the early specializers do jump out to an income lead because they have more domain-specific skills. But by year six the late specializers who have had a chance to sample and quit some things, they, when they do choose, they have higher growth rates. So very quickly, they catch up by six years out and zoom right past the early specializers. Meanwhile, the early specializers start quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers because they were made to choose so early that they more often made poor decisions. And that said, even when they do quit and they have incredible disincentive from doing so, right, because they have more experience in specific training, their growth rates are then faster because they're quitting in response to important information. And so I don't think we should always think of quitting as um, a failure. You know, sometimes uh, Steve Levitt, again, the economics economist, said one of his best skills is knowing when to jettison a project or even an entire area of study. And so I think we should try to embrace work ethic and perseverance, of course, and not just quit because you're having a bad day, but realize that this, this search for match quality has an incredible impact on our sense of, on our performance, on our sense of fulfillment, on our apparent grit. And if we're ignoring that search in favor of just picking and sticking, we're almost certainly not becoming our best selves. 
David, it's enormously insightful. Um, final thought before we end. I know you don't have a corporate job like you know nine to five in an office or organization. You've worked for organizations. You're a scientist. You're a researcher, writer, speaker. What advice would you give the average leader, mid-senior level leader, who has employees working for them, to apply this idea of range by allowing people to try new projects, move around, become generalists, without being Pollyanna, of course. Um, is there a formula at all or any insight you might give leaders to say, this is kind of the period of time you might want to keep someone in a particular role if you want to keep them long-term? Um, riff on that a bit. Yeah, so I would say, so let, let's go again to the analogy that I've been using because I've already sort of explained it a little, to think about that talent-based branching again. You know, can you build in systems that allow people some uh, ability to experiment within an organization, right? And one of the, I, I visited um, The Ringer recently, the, the company that Bill Simmons started, you know, one of the most popular podcasting companies. He used to be the most popular writer for ESPN. And it was, in, it's, it's doing really well. And I noticed it was, you know, people were really happy there. And one of the things you notice there is that people who were hired for one job, maybe to edit certain types of articles online, um, they're given a chance to say, hey, do you want to hop on a podcast and see how you do? And a couple of those people have become individually famous now in jobs they were not hired for. Um, one of those individuals, Mallory Rubin, I was my colleague at Sports Illustrated, and I had no idea how brilliant she was, even though we were working together, until she went to this other place where she was given options to try different things, and someone realized that, oh my gosh, she is a brilliant podcaster. I think they just made her the head of the, like the executive editor of the site actually, and she was hired for some much lower level job. And they have a lot of instances like that. And so I think if you can build in a little bit of flexibility for people to try things, one, it helps them learn what their colleagues do and what resources are out there for them to draw on, right? So like Bill Gore, who founded the company that created Gore-Tex, yeah. modeled the company after his observation that organizations do their most creative work during crisis because the disciplinary boundaries go out the window and everyone figures out what everyone else can do and how they can help each other. Um, so I think if you can build a little bit of that flexibility in, that's really a good thing. It, the, the trouble is it feels like taking time away um, from what somebody should be doing, but that's, that's really how you develop people and allow them to get that breadth. And uh, again, like that, to think of that, that LinkedIn research, um, those people need to work across a lot of job functions. And so if they can't do it in your organization, then they're gonna to have to switch organizations. And so I think we should try to build in just a little bit of ability to experiment into our development pipelines. And also separately, when you're arranging teams, again, we need specialists and generalists. But when you're arranging teams, get someone who has broad experience because their breadth galvanizes the specialists. It's the ally of depth, not its enemy. And you can see this in, in several different domains in the research I cite, right? Like patent research, the teams that make the biggest impacts, uh, you know, it used to be all specialists for most of the 20th century. And then with the dawn of the knowledge economy, where there's more information available, it's much easier to be broader than a specialist. Suddenly the biggest impacts are coming from teams that include individuals who have spread their work across a large number of different technology classes as identified by the patent office. And similarly, I look at comic books, right? The biggest impacts come from creators who make these breakthrough, very valuable comics who have worked across a large number of genres. That's the most important predictor. But those people, initially, you're better off with a team of specialists until those individuals get very broad, at which point, you know, once they've worked at like seven genres or more, 
you can no longer replace them by a platoon of specialists. But you don't know that early on, right? right? But if you want those people, those sort of polymaths, those people with breadth who make the big breakthroughs, whether they're working in tech or, or comic books, you have to do something that facilitates their ability to accumulate that breadth, even though it puts them behind early on. And then you really want those people, especially on teams of specialists, because the, the team ends up being more uh, than the sum of its parts. So David, given that it takes maybe three to four years to write a book, I'm gonna hold a spot for you back here in 20, you know, 2023. Other than changing 3,000 diapers in the coming year, what's next for you? You know, I have no idea, and I've usually been self-conscious about saying that, but now I feel like it's sort of on brand, so yeah. I can say it openly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really don't know. But I, so when I was a teenager, I knew exactly what I was gonna do, right? I was gonna go to the Air Force Academy and be a test pilot and then be an astronaut. And I ended up doing none of those things. And all of my most important projects um, were things that I did not foresee. Hmm. And so one of the reasons I, I quoted uh, Paul Graham, you know, Y Combinator uh, in the book, this, this high school graduation speech that he wrote but never gave, where he says, ignore the typical advice to picture who you're going to be in 10 or 20 years and, and march directly toward it. Because uh, what people really are saying is don't give up, and that's fine. But in computer science, we call that premature optimization. Right? You're deciding what to do or what to work on and how to make something before you really know what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. And most successful people, he notes, instead of working backward from some really long-term goal, they work forward from promising opportunities. And that's, that's essentially um, you know, what I've done and what I continue to do and, and is certainly the way that the people in the Dark Horse Project that I write about who find fulfilling work operate. And so... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my recovery time from writing a book. Obviously, I'm getting invited to talk about it a lot and things like that. But I'm going to go back to exploring my interests. And, and I feel comfortable with that. And I've seen the same sentiment expressed by you know, Christopher Nolan, a director whose work I love, Eric Larson, you know, a nonfiction writer who, whose work I love, where they basically say between projects, I need to read and talk to people with no apparent purpose. And that, that's the same I mean, the purpose, of course, is to find interests you didn't know you had. Right. And so that's the phase I'm about to go back yeah. into. The book is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. This, world, this book is going to be a seminal book for decades to come for good reason. Uh, David Epstein, thanks for joining us. I love the fact that on the cover of the book, your top headline endorsement is from Malcolm Gladwell, I Loved Range. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, the, actually, if you look at the back, he says something like, uh, David, it makes me thoroughly enjoy the experience of being told everything I thought about something was wrong, exactly. which I think is, is very interesting and, you know, self-deprecating of him. But, but really, we were set up in a debate that could have been, he could have seen as a zero-sum competition. And yeah. I think he came to it yeah. with an eye toward learning. And we ended up having a very productive um, intellectual relationship. And I think both learned a lot from each other. So I really uh, admire that about him. And everybody can see that on YouTube. David Epstein, thank you for joining us on Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Thanks for having me. We'll have you back again. Thank you for joining us. If you're not subscribing, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership button. It's a free newsletter that comes out every Tuesday around 6 a.m. Eastern time with a video and audio interview just like the one today with David Epstein, as well as a downloadable, downloadable tool from Franklin Covey's Leadership Toolkit and a blog post written by myself. Visit franklincovey.com and subscribe for free to On Leadership. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week with another interview.